this week in the markets. The precious metals flew to a two-week record and U.S. shares higher with the Dow Jones Industrials up nearly 1,200 points in a single week. Well, welcome back to Gold Seek Radio, everyone. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just great to be here with you. Season 14, episode 699. Nick Barashev returns to the show. He's head of the Bullion Management Group, BMG, and author of $10,000 Gold. He outlines just what he thinks will send the yellow metal from around thirteen, fourteen hundred today to the $10,000 mark in the coming years. He notes that if just 5% of the $300 trillion in the global stock and bond markets turns to the precious metals, it would send us at least a $10,000 gold. And he thinks that's inevitable. He outlines a very compelling case. And Chris Martinson of PeakProsperity.com, author of Prosper, notes the global, the everything bubble. Virtually every asset class has been inflated by profligate monetary policies. That really echoes Nick Baroshev's idea of a at least triple bubble that he says has never existed before. They both think we're teetering on the cusp of a second great recession like we saw in 2008 or maybe worse. This system of perpetual debt accumulation could mark the tipping point and we might just see galloping or even stronger inflation ahead. And we also agree that every portfolio should include at least a 1% to 3% investment in the cryptocurrencies to boost overall portfolio beta and as a safe haven asset in times of extreme chaos, as we're seeing in Venezuela. Plus, been working with SignalHunters.net. We own that domain. I'm sure you all know that we have, um, of course, proven extraterrestrial life. I know it's hard to believe We have deciphered actual messages from space and responded to the messages using the deciphered text. Well, this is something completely unexpected. Up to this point, we haven't even thought about any type of investment idea simply because we're too busy trying to uncover and present the information over 200 videos available on YouTube right now. Let me encourage you to bookmark SignalHunters.net if you haven't already and check out some of those videos. What we're finding is the big news this week. Something completely unexpected fell into our laps. One of our associates has identified, and I've confirmed this, an area that is simply blown us away has unmistakable artifacts, are virtually identical in every way. Not just the motif, not just the size, not just the type of artifacts on the surface of the red planet from the official NASA and European Space Agency archives. Well, folks, we've found this. And the surrounding land in this rural area, we actually now are looking at it procuring 167 acres. This is an actual trek that you could go on right now and purchase for less than 200000 What I believe could be seen as one of the greatest opportunities in years to get on a ground level, a pulled investment into some of this real estate, since it is so incredibly inexpensive. And we also see a mad land grab possibly occurring, a sort of a micro gold rush to the area. I've been studying the pre-dynastic and post-dynastic ancient Egypt hieroglyphs to try to help with the deciphering here for quite some time in Egypt. I have been looking at the 
stunning megalithic, of course, mega meaning giant lithic stone, giant stones all throughout South Central America, as well as Mexico and Europe, even in Asia. Folks, I have never seen the, the level of sophistication of what we found here on terra firma, on this planet. There's only one other place, Mars. This is legit, folks. If you're interested, just contact me, gstradio at frontier.com and gsr at hughes.net. We are the first serious party to be ready to take it public. And I wouldn't be surprised at all. I've, folks, this is real. And if you'd like to see some of the astounding artifacts, we have snapped some photos. Just let me know, gsradio at frontier.com and gsr at hughes.net. And Robert Ian wraps up the show with his latest must-hear editorial. The Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 514049. You can jot down this by the phone or plug it right into your iPhone or Android if you'd like. The number again, 641-715-3900, and you'll need the mailbox number 514049. Goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap. Visibility was virtually unlimited over the precious metals sector and for the second week running as investors cheered comments from the U.S. Fed chairman who sent the U.S. dollar reeling on new forward guidance with the benchmark overnight lending rate. At Friday's closing bell, the yellow metal blasted higher $35, finishing at close to $13.50. Silver left the launch pad ripping through $15, ending over $15.03, while the XAU precious metal shares picked up 6% at $70, $4.32. Black gold added half a dollar, finishing near 54 while palladium added almost 10 at $13.43. Platinum picked up $12, ending at 8.06 an ounce. The top story driving the metals higher this week, gold soared on comments of the U.S. Fed head, Jerome Powell, who hinted at rate cuts much sooner than expected. The Chicago Mercantile Exchange probabilities collapsed, indicating traders expect a rate cut next month, almost five months sooner than expected. On Tuesday, the Fed chairman, moved away from his patient stance on rate cuts, noting risks due to the trade tariffs and barriers, said the, the central bank would respond as appropriate. The hint of new liquidity is always viewed as inflationary. That sent the precious metals into orbit. Elsewhere, the exchange-traded gold-backed ETF is just starting to turn around. Investors are only waking up to the trend, so it hasn't seen much in the way of net inflows just yet. Global assets under management, though, of gold ETFs climbed 1% to $101 billion as the price of gold rallied nearly 2% in May. Bottom line on precious metals. As our guest Nick Baryshev noted this week, just one of the Dow 30 components would be nearly enough to purchase all the gold in the world, available gold, that is, for sale. And this is a stunning thought because there's just so much liquidity out there. And now more liquidity is about to hit the spigots, according to the Fed and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Plus, we have favorable seasonals coming up with jewelry manufacturers, retailers, and related folks loading up and stockpiling on the metal. So for the time being, things look solid. Moving on to the Wall Street report, visibility was clearer over the New York Stock Exchange this week. 
for the first week in several as investors loaded portfolios with discounted shares in anticipation of a surprise rate cut by the USFOMC next month. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow picked up 1,200 points, nearly 5%, ending just shy of 26,000. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 was up 121, 5%. At 2873, and the Nasdaq flew higher nearly 304%, just shy of 7,800 points. Meanwhile, the key driver sparking the change, of course, was the new tone from the FOMC. Policymakers startled U.S. dollar investors, which fell to a two-month low. Also frightened by the fact that private employers had added the least number of jobs since 2010, almost a decade. The news worried investors that we might see a prolonged trade conflict and maybe even enter a global slowdown. Meanwhile, the International Monetary Fund cautioned that the U.S.-China trade tariffs could curtail global economic output by about half a percent next year. Plus, the price of gold has soared Over $70 an ounce since the U.S. president noted he was considering tariffs on Mexico, our southern neighbor. But so far, that's only been saber-rattling. Turning to interesting stocks in the news, Jim Cramer recommended several on Thursday. 3M, ticker Triple M, which looks solid from a bargain-hunting perspective, but it is, you know, sharply lower. Hasbro, ticker HAS, and General Mills, ticker GIS, also look like solid portfolio candidates. U.S. shares bottom line. Well, the USA Today Greed to Fear Index finally dropped to the extreme level, as I mentioned, and we did get a bounce, just as one might expect. For the time being, it looks like we're in a trading range and, frankly, positioning for what looks like a potential launch pad to much higher highs. And coming up after the break, more Gold Seek Radio. Back with us here at Gold Seek Radio. It's a pleasure to welcome back co-founder of PeakProsperity.com, author of the best-selling book, Prosper, Chris Martin. So how are you, Chris? Oh, I'm doing very well today, Chris. Great to have you here. And, you know, we'd like to sink our teeth into the financial markets. Really like your thoughts on whether or not U.S. equities have reached their peak. A lot of our guests here are pounding the table. This is the top. Tell us why they're either right or wrong this time. I've been in the wrong camp as well. I've, I'm perfectly happy, however, to sit out uh, bubbles, and that's what we're in. We're in, an, we're in an everything bubble. We've talked about it before, and let's be clear on a definition. A bubble exists when asset prices rise beyond what incomes can sustain or justify, right? So if you have a house that um, you, know, you could buy for $2 million but rent out for $1,000 a month, it, it, the cash flows just don't make any sense on that from a business standpoint. You might still buy it and live there, but it, it's, it's way beyond what the income can sustain. And we're seeing that. What do we have? Probably 50 separate IPO, recent IPO companies that are over a billion in valuation, which have negative earnings. How do you even value these things, right? We saw Lyft. We saw Uber go off, right? These are two cash hemorrhaging companies valued in the tens of billions of dollars collectively. And that's just uh, uh, absolute definition of a bubble. 
uh, and what you see there. So, uh, listen, the, the central banks have, you know, they got into trouble in 2008. They printed. They got in trouble again in 2011. They printed out of that. 2013, one more time. 2016, again. And here we are, and the question is, can they print their way out of trouble? You need a coordinated global intervention for this to work. We had a nice one in December. People's Bank of China doing most of the heavy lifting, but the ECB doing some, Bank of Japan, of course. And then the Fed, of course, caving on their interest rate hikes and also softening up their language around their balance sheet runoff. Together, you put all those four several banks together, we had the easiest financial conditions in ever in the chart that I have, ever. So we're, we're the easiest pot. Like, you want money, it's there. You want to borrow, it's there. Anything you need, it's there. You want cheap rates, it's there. Everything you could possibly hope for. And that did give us a, 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 a bounce in stocks, but back sort of towards their all-time highs. It wasn't enough to get us off to new races. And now we have, A, a globally slowing economy, and B, this trade war between the United States and China just took another turn for the worse today. We've been hearing threats of $200 billion additional dollars in, of course, tariffs and trade barriers levied on our largest trade partner, by the way, and the second largest you know, manufacturing powerhouse, economic powerhouse in the world, even rivaling the Eurozone, which has more people here than we do in the United States and is a slightly larger economy, I believe, than the United States. But, you know, that's our largest trading partner. Is this just saber-rattling? Well, I, I truly believe that there's a new world in front of us, and the United States is acting like it wants to go back in time. It wants to be the big bully on the block. It has a big stick. It's trying to club everybody into following our rules. My goodness, we're, we're saber-rattling uh, with Russia and with China at the same time that we are threatening Germany with sanctions, potentially, over Nord Stream 2, which is a gas pipeline coming out of Russia that they desperately need for their energy security. We want them not to do that because we don't like Russia, and Germany has other interests, including their own, uh, and their energy security to, to consider. Um, we're looking at levying sanctions across anybody who does business with Iran, buying any of their oil, and uh, that, of course, uh, is needed on the world market uh, by a variety of players right now. But the big deal, the big deal today is that in uh, the People's Daily in China, there was commentary uh, where they said, quote, we advise the U.S. side not to underestimate the Chinese side's ability to safeguard its development rights and interests. Don't say we didn't warn you. Now, that language, don't say we didn't warn you, they've only said that twice in history. One was in 62, right before the China border war with India, and they said it again in 79, right before the China-Vietnam War. That's big language for, for China when they say, don't say we didn't warn you. And they're talking about maybe pulling rare earths, uh, which they supply 95% of to the world. They're maybe pulling those off of the market. That would really hamstring our technology. We're in the, you know, busy um, putting uh, bullets into, the, into uh, Huawei, their, their major corporation for technology and communications. It's getting worse, not better. And so it's very hard for me, Chris, to say we've got a slowing global economy. We've got some really awful-looking global trade charts. We've got massive amounts of debt on the books. Things are a little bit weak to take a major trade war that's heating up and put it on top of that. I would say your listeners who think that stocks have hit their zenith here and are ready for a big retreat are, are uh, in the right on this one. You know, again, the mantra, the whole way up, stocks are risky, don't buy U.S. shares. Another crash is right around the corner, and we heard that for 10 years. Maybe two of my guests over the last decade have been right. One, Louis Navalier, 
and the other Armstrong, while everyone else has been shorting, shorting, and wrong. You're in the camp now that they're finally going to be vindicated. Ten years later, strong case that you're making. Um, what about the fact that the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, you know, traders are obviously anticipating a rate cut as soon as December, January. Will we be entering a rate cut cycle by our Fed policymakers, and what are the implications? Well, yeah, so the Fed is going to do everything it can to try and prevent any asset price declines because it's hitched its entire wagon up to this idea, which was, hey, if we can just elevate financial assets, that becomes now the mechanism by which the economy runs. It's, it's literally the tail wagging the dog. They've got some evidence to support that, but more importantly, reputationally, they've hitched everything to this idea that they're going to fix everything by ramming up asset prices. Pay no attention to the fact that by doing that, what they really did was they created a massive wealth gap between you know, the 0.1% and everybody else. They created income gaps. They've created a lot of social instability. I think the central banks uh, are, are the proud owners of Trump, of Brexit, of the yellow vests, of all these populist movements where the 99% have discovered redistributive organization, right? So point A, who'd they move it from? Well, savers. You didn't have about a trillion, trillion and a half missing interest dollars on savings accounts in the United States due to the low rate policy. Um, so the Fed, you know, is the proud owner of all kinds of maladjustments and deformations. That's great. Are they going to try and do it again? You bet. Will it work this time? I said something very important earlier, which was that this has to be globally coordinated. You need all the central banks doing the same thing. We've had that, but with this rupture in U.S. and China and also this friction U.S. to Europe, I don't know that we have that same coordination, one. Two, in Europe, they are already feeling, because they have a more restive population, they're already feeling the impacts of the people coming out and voting. A big vote happened in the EU recently, which was very Euro-skeptic-heavy, a lot of wins by the, by the Brexit Party people, uh, not the Remainers. So we're seeing the social pushback, the political pushback. I don't think the European Central Bank has it in its, in its political uh, toolbox anymore to go forward and do one more big round of printing at this particular stage. They would need something very scary to happen first, with a lot of supporting uh, documentation and, and support from, from the uh, media to say, hey, this is really scary, people. We're going to have to really, you know, we'll have, we have to do it one more time. But every time they do this, what do we get? More deformed markets, more wealth going to a very tiny select crew, and things getting harder for everybody else. That's because the game has changed, and the central banks don't know it. Will they try one more time to pretend like the game hasn't changed? Of course. But I don't think it can work uh, this next time. I can't help but wonder. I mean, let's take a look at the Fed's balance sheet before the 2008, 2009, four or 500 million on the Fed's balance sheet. Of course, fast forward to today, we're just shy of four trillion. So they never really wrung the excess, did they, out of the system? And as a result, you know, we're living, I feel like we're almost living on borrowed time. You know, I mean, are we living in the twilight zone? <laughs> and what are the implications? What might be another economic slowdown, two quarters back-to-back -back declining GDP, possibly, you know, in our future. And we still haven't removed that QE from the system. Still, let's say, approximately $3.5 trillion. I mean, it doesn't bode well, and it would seem to imply that the system is at least structurally broken or let's say does that foretell anything for our economic future well it, it 
tells us a couple of things. First, it, it tells us that um, all that money that the Fed has put out into the system, they no longer have the capacity to pull it back in without causing real extraordinary damage. So, so we get that, right? Um, and, you know, this whole idea of the Fed going to cut rates or raise rates, it's very much, it's really actually academic at this point because it, it's not doing what it used to do. People need to understand this. Like, the mechanism is really important. So in old days, this is before the great financial crisis, when the Fed raised rates, what did it do? Well, it didn't have a magic dial. It had to go out into the overnight market and pull cash from the banks that were lending it to each other in the overnight market and yank enough out so that the overnight interest rate would rise to the level it, it wanted, right? It didn't set the interest rate to, say, 3%. It set it for a band, somewhere around 3% being an average, right? And they did that by pulling money out of the market in reverse when they wanted to cut rates. They would push money back out into the market and uh, into the ma- banking sphere. So that whole push-pull thing took liquidity away and put it back. What's different today? Well, they don't do that anymore. They didn't remove a single dollar from circulation in order to have interest rates rise. They simply did turn a dial this time. It was called interest on excess reserves. Guess what? The the Fed pushes money into the marketplace. The banks put it back uh, with the Fed for safekeeping, and the Fed pays interest on that, often better than any rate you could possibly get from a bank. So so uh, the banks themselves have been getting this many multi-tens of billions of dollars a year interest handout from the Federal Reserve, and, and that's the system we've got. So long way of saying, what happens if the Fed actually cuts rates? Well, it's got a psychological impact. So people are like, oh, my gosh, rates are cut. The, the Fed's easing. But what's not happening is the Fed is not pushing money out into the marketplace to make that happen. Whether the Fed hikes or lowers rates, we still have exactly the same amount of liquidity in the system. And I already said earlier, these are the easiest financial conditions in all of history, according to the charts I have. It's, it, it's not, you, you couldn't, like nobody's suffering wanting to buy a car with a loan or want to buy a house and finding there's no mortgage money or banks, you know, or have, you know nobody's having trouble finding capital right now. It's everywhere. So the interest rate hikes, whether they do it or don't, is really more psychological than, than really having much of a technical uh, or actually realistic impact in the marketplace because no money was cr- harmed in the making of this new interest rate. Let's move on then to the implications for the U.S. housing market. Higher rates, not a great thing for, for folks interested in securing a mortgage. You know, with the Fed talking about lower rates, I'd like your thoughts on whether or not that might help sup- new home sales. One of the best leading indicators, I think, it's it's slightly more than coincidental, tends to give us a good feel for what's going on. New housing starts have remained extremely robust, despite all the naysayers who have said, oh, no, 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 we're in the echo bubble 2.0. I'd like to know where we are in the housing cycle, according to Peak Prosperity. We have a number of markets that are very bubblicious. And again, a bubble is when asset prices rise beyond what incomes can sustain. So you know, just pick a key market, uh, San Francisco, right? You know, median median house price in, in San Francisco is 1.3 million. What kind of a what kind of an income do you need to sustain that? Well, you have 330, 340,000, something like that to pull that off. When the actual median income in San Francisco is around 75,000, so the incomes are not sufficient to support the houses in that market. So that we'd say that's a very stretched market. No, there's only a couple ways to solve that. Um, one is you have vastly lower borrowing rates so people can afford more. Okay, that, that helps a little bit, but not totally. 
Two, uh, you have to have wages come up a lot. Well, that's not really in the wage data right now. They're nudging up, but not that much. Um, and then three, house prices come down. That's the traditional way all this goes around. Now, whether the Fed raises or lowers interest rates, again, is immaterial in this story because they're doing that on the short end of the curve. Mortgages are made off of the long end of the curve at the 10-year. Now, they're pretty good news. I think we're down almost 100 basis points in, since November uh, from around three, a little over 3.1%. We're, we're closing all the way back down uh, just, just north of 2%. Now, that's causing its own concerns because we now have an inverted yield curve. The money is now cheaper at 10 years than it is at three months on this uh, story. So that flattened slash inverted yield curve often has in the past indicated uh, economic weakness, if not recession coming. Different story, but I'm connecting this because recessions and housing markets are very tightly connected, right? So with, with uh, recessions, you typically find weaker home sales, weaker home pricing, all of that. So yes, on average, I think the U.S. housing market looks kind of okay, not bad, doesn't scare me nearly as much as Canada's, certainly not as bad as Australia's, way better than China's, but in key markets, it's, absolutely, it's been very stretched for a while, and those markets need to be held up by the jobs and the overall economy. Now, we're, what, what are we at? The closing in on the longest expansion ever uh, in terms of months of continuous expansion. So, so this is this expansion's long in the tooth. Um, there's no guarantee that it has to end necessarily. But if you're a betting person, you think a recession is probably closer than further away at this point. Doesn't the Fed tend to, or at least we watch the Fed funds futures, they're almost a coincidental indicator. I think you'd agree. Um, they tend to follow rates higher and lower, even a lag in some, some instances. So just the fact that investors are anticipating uh, lower rates would seem to imply an interesting, I mean, you know, I got to be careful with correlation and causation. Moving forward here, obviously, I've got to touch on the cryptos. I mean, talk about a roller coaster ride. Under sub 1,000 in less than 12 months to 20,000 on Bitcoin. Okay. The king of the, of the alternative currencies, if you will. So a 20X in a roughly one year back down to $3,300, $3,400 and now encroaching on 9,000 again. So a little bit of volatility there. I know traders like that, but for the rest of us, boring portfolio investors who still believe in the idea, since we win 99% of the time, that portfolio investing uh, just works. Do you have a formula? What would be a safe percentage for someone at almost virtually any stage in their investment career to add a modicum of diverse high flyers in the crypto market? Would 1% be too risky, 2 3%? It would be some number like that because, again, uh, here we're talking – speculation, right? This is a very early stage emergent technology. You know, we went through the big explosive excitement where everything was going to be on the blockchain to the point where almost nobody's talking about what could be on the blockchain. People are talking about the prices of certain cryptos again, but again, their value, their ultimate value comes from the utility they can provide. And Bitcoin has some utility, especially for people who are looking to um, get money from one location to another. I can't think of a more portable form of wealth. Uh, you know, you can put it on a thumb drive and, and walk with a, a billion dollars across a board. A lot of us here are waking up to it. And, and I like this idea you bring up because I think it's underestimated the importance of crossing borders, of just because folks who have nefarious 
agendas have a tendency to cross borders with large sums of unmarked currencies doesn't mean the rest of us should be, I think, you know, de facto dumped in to that type of character or that type of, um, we shouldn't be associated with that type of behavior. We should have the option to do as we would with what we've accumulated. After all, I think that was the whole concept here, wasn't it? The whole idea of um, having a relatively free republic was the idea that, hey, if you work hard, you play by the rules, you pay your taxes, whatever is left is yours. It's not the bankers. You should be able to cross the borders, and it's your business. And by the way, you're talking about a thumb drive. What about memorizing a 10- or 20-word seed phrase and taking not anything, even a sheet of paper across that same border, your iPhone or your Android that you purchase in the new country, you take nothing with you, and suddenly you have your family's entire wealth on another hemisphere, let's say the southern hemisphere. Well, I think that's that's one a, a very attractive option, and particularly as you look at um, the, the crackdowns that are happening in, in China, and let's say you have a lot of wealth and you're from there and you would like to diversify and make sure that you had some portable wealth, that's a way. Um, you know, let, let's be clear, crypto itself is, is not um, crypto in the sense that it's completely hidden. Uh, the transactions are all perfectly trackable, traceable. We'd be naive to think that the NSA hasn't, hasn't figured out a way to, to track every bit that goes everywhere. But um, at the same time, you know, it's, it's a very easy, portable way if, you, if you're looking to uh, move things that way. And, and, I, and, I, and I get it. There's, like, people who need to, um, if you're in Venezuela and you have no access uh, to any gold or, or hard currency, but you can access the Internet, you can access a, a different uh, monetary system that's very important. So I think in this world where you are seeing a lot of uh, grabby governments and you're starting to see uh, this idea that people, you know, rightly think, you know, if I've worked for and I've accumulated this wealth, I would like to be able to control what happens to it next. And, you know, that's been sort of the gold thesis for a long time, right? So listen, I can't control what the Federal Reserve is going to do. And as I've already outlined, I think they're trapped. And as they do that, as long as I'm holding Federal Reserve notes, I'm stuck in their system. What are you going to do, right? Well, what you do is you get rid of your Federal Reserve notes, and then the question is for what? So under that scenario, I can make a pretty strong argument that cryptos are going to have a, a, good, uh, a good role to play. My concern, as always, is that governments are grabby, and eventually they're going to come out with a Fed coin or something like that. And just like the Treasury Department, what right does the Treasury Department to reach across the world and say, we're, we're going to punish anybody who does business with Iran? Well, they don't have any legal right, but of course they can do that, so they will do that. And I could make a case for uh, a similar thing happening at some point in the future, which is why I use the word speculative. And there's a couple of things we have to speculate on. One, that that freedom that, that cryptocurrencies have enjoyed will persist. That's, we all have to admit that it might, but there's a risk there. And two, they're now going to have to find some utility out there in the big wide world, which is why, you know, I like the ones that are operating like money, like Bitcoin, the ones that are predicated on an idea, uh, like Ripple, we're going to transform the banking system. Eh, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, that's, that to me is uh, much more speculative than, uh, than uh, betting on the moneyness of all of this. So what the technology is going to be takes a lot of exploration. I think there's a great uh, case to be made for if you're going to invest, investing with funds that, that do the hard work of figuring out what is the advantage, what is the technology, who are its competitors, who is on the team. A lot of very good questions need to be asked, 
Uh, but this is no different than asking once upon a time, you know, do you like VHS? Do you like Betamax? Well, listen, I don't know, I, but I believe people like entertainment. So, so how do I begin to play in this space? It's going to change. Several comments come to mind. Uh, firstly, you talk about grabby officials. Clearly, that's always a risk. But I think the risk is much lower now that we've listened to several officials from the SEC and related agencies say, look, we're viewing cryptos essentially as we viewed email. Their stance so far has been one of a laissez-faire hands-off. But for the most part, as similarly as, let's say, the late 90s, on the new dot-com revolution. They love the fact, you know, that it is bringing increased revenues to their coffers. It's bringing, creating new jobs. It's creating new markets. They, what they don't want to do is squash the technology and because they saw what happened in China. All the developers, all the founders, all the new ideas, all the concepts, you know, just moved to Japan. And now Japan is having a Bitcoin revolution of epic proportions. They're number two currency. You can't walk into a, an outfit in most of Tokyo without being able to make a purchase. You know, this idea that, A, there's no adoptability is bunk. The idea that it's going to be outlawed, good luck with that. I would propose that it'd be much easier to outlaw gold than before you could outlaw something that's intangible to the naysayers and detractors. And I'd like your thoughts on, you know, this idea, well, what can you do with it? Out West, as they're already accepting gold and silver, as you may know, in lieu of tax payments, state tax payments and other arrangements, they are now accepting Bitcoin in more than one state. I, I want to say New Mexico, Arizona, and or drop down to Venezuela, whereas, you know, they created the Petro cryptocurrency. What we're waiting for here, Chris Martinson, is for the next shoe to drop. Could be a uh, more broad and ubiquitous street tracks like ETF that uh, brings in the institutions. That's number one. But number two, the thing that's on, I think this may be our unique idea, actually, maybe not. What happens when some peripheral central bank, such as Iran, such as, as I mentioned, Venezuela, Argentina, North Korea, okay, one of these disenfranchised groups says, hey, we need to purchase oil. We can't get around this. Gold works. It's slow. It's cumbersome. We need a better way. We're going to diversify one-tenth of one percent of our currency reserves into a crypto that i think could lead to an avalanche of interest always a pleasure please return to the show well i'd love to thank you for that for fine jewelry just got easier goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times many jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry 
Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, many jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one goal. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. It's a pleasure to welcome Nick Barashev back to the show, CEO of Bullion Management Group and author of $10,000 Gold, Why Gold's Inevitable Rise is the Investor's Safe Haven. I have two hard copies here, published, I think, in 2013. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Welcome back, Nick Barisha. My pleasure to be back, Chris. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit more about this interesting hedge fund. Of course, this is just for accredited investors. Those are investors who obviously have incomes of 250000 or more, or in net value, at least at the last time I checked this and see of $1 million in net assets. We're primarily going to target, um, as well as accredited investors, but uh, pension funds as well, because um, as everyone knows, pension funds are fantastically underwater, and that's during one of the longest-running bull markets in history. 
So if they're underwater now, what's going to happen when the market corrects? I mean, imagine being so deeply in trouble with so much debt out there, not just the government, so the municipalities. The worst one, of course, is Chicago. And and the issue is that, uh, you know, that they they try and shore up the the pension fund deficit by raising taxes. More people move out of Chicago, and the pension fund problem becomes worse. You know, it really echoes, I think, what we've seen in the horror show in Memphis, Cleveland, St. Louis. There's municipalities in California where the, the existing retirees, um, policemen, firemen, you know, uh, teachers, have received a notice in the mail that from now on their pension checks are going to be half of the old amount. Well, what do you do then? Surviving at 100%, what happens to you at 50%? Think of the inflated real estate prices. So you have these people who are, you know, in their golden years, they played by the rules, they served, you know, society, and they were made a promise. If you serve and protect, we will take care of you, help help you, retirement and your families. And suddenly that's out the window. So I understand you have some ideas on how to help people in this situation. Yeah, our hedge fund is going to be based on a couple of, principles that uh, aren't unusual, but people don't seem to follow. The first, uh, the first is, ultimately, you want diversification. And diversification isn't a variety of stocks. It's stocks, bonds, uh, precious metals, commodities, and real estate. Now, other than the really big pension portfolios, none of them have gold, and none of them have, have real estate. Big ones own some buildings, but the typical fund owns neither. They had to have just stocks and bonds, and that's not diversified. Their stocks and bonds have been correlated since '79, particularly major declines. So that's that's number one. Number two, everybody's under the impression: stay invested, stay invested, no matter what. Don't trade in and out. That advice is valid. During a, a, a bull market, it's not valid when we're teetering on the edge of what can be the biggest market crash in history. Stocks and bonds have been correlated since 1979. And I know some of our investors, the younger folks, <laughs> they share a common central correlation. When So when one starts to go down sharply and a new trend, the whole ship could sink. And, and that's an interesting point. So they don't have the precious metals, and they don't have real estate exposure. Now, we're hearing that we're on an echo bubble in real estate today. Triple bubble, and I've been in the business for 40 years, and it's the first time that we have a simultaneous triple bubble. Uh, normally, we have a bubble in equities, or we have a bubble in real estate, or bubble in you know fixed income, or something like that. But now we've got a bubble in all three. Um, real estate, uh, if you look at the Case-Shiller ratio, we're at the same level we were in 2007, just before the crash. Same level. That's number one. In terms of equities, if you take the traditional um, equity valuations, like the, uh, the Buffett indicator, the Shiller P-E ratio to Tobin's Q ratio, all of those conventional ratios 
we're at the second highest levels ever. Okay, so they're they're catering. Now, worse of all, though, the margin debt this time around has grown by 220% since 2007. 220%. So what that means when this turns and the margin calls get made, the rate of collapse of the market will be extremely quick because everybody will get margin calls. Doesn't it mean that with so many new bearish instruments, that much of that margin debt will be reversed into right bets against the market, magnifying the downside. That's right. So that's number one. And what people, because, you know, I'm, I'm old enough, so I've, I've lived through two corrections, the 1980, uh, 2000 to 2008. But if you, if you study the history of the market, so for example, if you take 1929, if, if you stayed invested in, in 29 and just waited to break even, it took you 25 years to break even on a nominal basis. It took you 67 years to break even on an inflation-adjusted basis. You didn't break even on an inflation-adjusted basis until about 1994. Now, that means that whoever was an investor in 29 wasn't alive long enough to break even. Okay, when you look at the Japanese Nikkei, now the Japanese Nikkei was a high-flying market. Everything was wonderful and couldn't couldn't do any wrong and so on. So it it tanked in in about 1989. Well, it's still down 46 percent from that peak. Still down 46 percent. What about the Nasdaq? The Nasdaq circa 2000. If we look at going back to 2000. The, uh, the NASDAQ on, on a nominal basis took 14, 14 years, eight months. On an inflation adjusted basis, it is just teetering on breaking even now. That's almost two decades. That's right. The thinking that there's two components which, which goes against the grain. Number one, uh, is at this point in time, you, you want to get out of financial assets and even investment real estate if you if you have rental accommodation stuff like that. Uh, you want to get out of it, and the first step would be to sit in cash. Okay, but if you if you study gold the way I have, you'll see that every single major correction, uh, gold has had fantastic performance. So, for example. In, in the period of 2002, gold was up 18%, while the equity markets were down 18%. In 2007 to 2009 period, gold was up 26%, while the equity markets were down 42%. So this is, this is what happens when the markets tank, gold goes up. So if you want to sit it out, is what what you do is you sit it out in gold. Now that's that's going to be contrary to conventional wisdom because on a normal basis you want to hold twenty percent in gold, but not right now. Right now, 
you know, you want to be in cash, but in cash you'll be you'll be flat. You at least you won't lose fifty to seventy percent. But if you sit it out in gold, you may have fairly spectacular capital gain. Now, what people don't understand, and 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 this hasn't been you know promoted at the banks, Wall Street, or anything else, is that the BIS now rates gold for banks and central banks has a zero-risk asset equal to U.S. dollars and U.S. treasuries. That's from the Bank of International Settlements. Okay, and that's been implemented as of January this year. Nobody nobody knows that. So that's when you say sitting it out in gold is basically tantamount to sitting it out in U.S. dollars. But one really wonders, though, when the will that continue to hold. I mean, one would think that there'd be you'd see a severing between gold and the dollar at that point. Could be, but you see, the thing is that, that you're going to have both going up simultaneously. The dollar is kind of the cleanest shirt in the laundry. Um, all of the other countries are in much worse shape, so it's, everything still floods to the dollar. Your scenario here, I think, is really more the nascent or the initial conditions of the chaotic system collapse, the three-body problem. So initially, we would see correlation with the dollar because of the mad dash for liquidity. But once that dries up, then one would think a gold rush. Well, and this is, this is why like the, the central banks have been setting records in purchasing physical gold. Now, this is primarily China, Russia, some of the Eastern European countries, Asian countries. But they're buying gold hand over fist. So, so we've got a record accumulation at the central banks already. Uh, the second thing to, to remember is that if we take just stocks and bonds globally, in round numbers, that's about 300 trillion. Now, in gold, the thing is, if you analyze above-ground gold and look at only the the investment-grade gold, in other words, the London Good Delivery Pars, right, that's only about $1.7 trillion. That's all the gold there is to buy, like as an investment-grade gold. Central banks are buying, jewelry isn't going to be sold, and the other applications are industrial. So you've got $1.7 trillion in 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 investment-grade gold. Now, a great deal of that is owned by the world's wealthiest families like the Rothschilds. So no matter what the price is, they're not going to sell. So something less than $1.7 trillion is available. Secondly, mine, mine production is in decline, and exploration is in decline. No new discoveries have been made. So if gold goes up dramatically, uh, mine, mines aren't going to help. It takes 23 years now to take a mine from discovery to production. 23 years if it's already passed all the, all the environmental things. So the issue is if you take simple math and you say, well, what if 5% of the people that own stocks and bonds decided to buy gold? So that's 15 trillion trying to buy 1.7 trillion. The 15x right out of the box. Yeah, because nothing else can change other than the price. Now, 5% is a conservative number because 
if if the market decline is is a major one, a lot more than five percent is going to flee to gold. The magnification effect, the amplification that leverage paper products might imply, at least initially, and then once they start to default, can one even imagine it would be almost a a mad, just a gold rush of epic proportions in search of physical bullion relative to almost any other asset? I'm old enough for I remember the days in 79, so at Scotiabank, the lineup would start at 7 in the morning in front of the main branch, and it would go down the street on King Street and then up the street to Young Street, four people deep. And the fellow that's on our on our board of directors now, he he was a, formerly a director of Scotia Mercata. His first job at the bank was to go outside, count the number of people in in line, and then announce to the rest that they might as well go home because they won't get served today. I recall neighbors, close friends of the family, um, whispering to my parents that they were hiding gold coins and bars in their backyard right at that same time. How challenging it was to purchase physical in those decades, in those earlier decades. See, what happened when you, when you look at the pension issue, right, and if you take a medium-sized pension plan, not the biggest, not, not anything, just an ordinary run-of-the-day pension plan, Many of them at 5% would need to buy billions of dollars worth of gold, just at 5%. So as soon as one or two does that, that'll be it. That'll be all the gold above ground for sale gold gone. Could happen, ironically, at any time. Here's just one little corroboration for your point. Ray Dalling, Bridgewater, I mean, the super quant uh, that everyone admires, on Wall Street, his numbers really for decades. But he just announced that his fund is ramping up their their holdings of the yellow metal. So just to corroborate your thoughts, he's purchasing the GLD ETF. Big mistake because here's what happened. Because I'm one of the guys that reads the prospectuses and the underlying documents and so on. So first of all. When the GLD ETF came out, the prospectus was 140 pages long. Okay, it's now 70. Okay, well, how do you do that? That's number one. Number two, you had to had to also get a copy of the authorized participant agreement because that outlines how the gold gets into the ETF by the authorized participants. And the issue is that the authorized participants, the big banks like J.P. Morgan, borrow the gold from central banks and contribute it to the ETF. The ETF gives them ETF shares that they sell to the public. So they get to keep 100% of the proceeds on borrowed gold. The gold sits in the ETF doesn't belong to the investors. That's the problem, because if you look at the, the BIS accounting records, is when you lease gold, title to the gold stays with the lessor, just like any other kind of lease. 
title does not transfer. So the issue is if the counterparty authorized participant was to fail, the central bank simply goes back to the ETF and says, here's the lease agreement, give me back my gold. And all the investors lose because the premise is totally wrong. You don't buy gold based on the cheapest one you could find. You buy gold so that you ensure that you own gold in the various paper schemes. You don't own anything. Of our guests over the decades, especially at Gata.org, uh, that echoing your thoughts here today, almost precisely, that very few people will be able to extricate any metal at all from the Street Tracks ETF. The, the functioning of, say, the gold ETF and the functioning of our bullion funds, okay? Like when, in our case, when money comes in, we go out and buy the gold and it belongs to the unit holders of our fund. But that's not how the mechanism works in ETF and, and people don't understand that. And, and all it is is, is there's gold in the ETF vaults for show, but the investors don't own it. And this is what we've stressed um, is that just like if, if you buy a car, a boat, a plane, or anything, you, you get a transfer of ownership of a specific asset. So the car is make, model, serial number, license number, and you sell it to me. And the, the conveyance is done that way. So with gold, you have to have the same thing, a, a specific bar of bullion, which is refiner, serial number, exact weight, and exact purity, needs to be transferred from the seller to the buyer. Okay? If you don't have that, you don't own any gold. Do you mind continuing with that and adding a little more subtleties and nuances? Because there's so many services that will accept your hard-earned bullion and try to give you paper promises. If I understand you correctly today, if you don't have the serial numbers, it's not your goal. That's right. So so the thing is that, you know, for people that are going to, you know, buy some coins and hide them in their backyard, that's fine. No problem getting up possession of them to hide the coin. But I'm talking about if, you, if you're buying hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of gold, it's a very bad idea to store it in your house. Because to, to keep that a secret becomes uh, hard. Like, I don't know if you heard about the guy in Vancouver that took um, 750000 of his life savings, bought silver from the bank, took it home, and, you know, stored it somewhere in the house. So one night uh, there was a knock on the door. He looked outside. Well, they pistol-whipped him, tied him up, and spent the weekend offloading his silver. He fend against that. The issue is everybody's going to open the door. Clarify, a couple of nefarious characters, they stop by and impersonate uh, police officers and then borrow the poor individual's uh, silver bars while he was watching helplessly. It's, it's a, it is a story, and yes, I did see that just briefly, I think, on Gata.org, and their dispatch is there. Well, it's, it's basically the, the bottom line is the way our hedge fund is structured and people can do that themselves as that is for the moment. 
you, you can convert your holdings to gold, wait for the correction to happen, then you go back in and buy. At that point, you'll be buying stuff 50 to 70% off. But you have to be out of the markets to do that, or you'll lose 50 to 70%. But they, they, like for instance, um, here's the kind of example of, of what you could buy. So in Canada, we have um, an office REIT, okay? So in 2007, the price was 46 bucks, and a dividend yield was 4.7. So the market crashed, and it crashed down to 7 bucks. At 7 bucks, the dividend yield was 30. Okay? Now, the thing is, the office rents didn't change because the stock price of the REIT crashed. All the tenants in all those buildings were still paying the same rent. That's why the dividend yield went to 30. But you had to be a, a, able to be in cash or liquid in gold to take the opportunity to buy at that particular bottom. But that, that's the magnitude. Same thing will happen in mining stocks. Mining stocks aren't badly priced today, but they'll still tank 70%. If the market tanks 50, they'll tank 70 because they're so thinly capitalized. But then there'll be the, the, the bargains of a lifetime to buy at that point. So you feel then that we still could be facing some rough seas for a while on the precious metal? I think so. Well, the, the, the issue is that the, the metals might go up. But you see, the mining stocks, you know, when, when you've got a sort of a bull market in, in precious metals and equities, then the mining stocks go up. But if, if, even if you have the gold price going up, but the equity markets tank, the mining stocks will tank by a greater percentage than the equity markets. No matter what's happening to the price of gold. People always think that mining stocks are a leveraged buy on gold. They're not. During a decline, they're not. That, I think, is important information because for investors who are thinking, well, instead of buying bullion today, I'll just leverage my bets and go all in, push all the chips in on that portion of my portfolio in the highly leveraged shares. Maybe let's diversify first. Let's accumulate that strong base in the gold and silver bullion, and then and, and then and, and then you reallocate one once the market tanks, whether it's whether it's REIT stocks and bonds, everything will be on sale. Then you know, then you get bargains of a lifetime. See, I have to remember that all the global mining stocks put together, their market cap is less than Microsoft alone. Just one of the Dow 30 components. Think about that, listeners. Just one of the Dow 30 components, Microsoft, or maybe a Google or a Netflix or something along those lines, is enough that just the market cap alone to cover the entire precious metals mining space, the XAU, the HUI. Please continue. That's right. So that's, that's why I'm saying is, is that, that given that gold bullion is the equivalent of a cash, as recognized by the Bank of International Settlements, that's what you sit in right now. Okay, and then be patient. There might be a little bit of upside, plus or minus, 
but the the upside might be five ten percent and the downside seventy to eighty percent. It's not worth it. Yeah, I I think the 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 decline is going to be worse than two oh eight, and potentially worse than twenty nine. This triple bubble, but sitting on top of a mountain of debt. Can you put on the visor and? You know, look forward a bit in time. I mean, are we looking, do you think, at a two or three year epic? Or is this the beginning, as some of our guests have proposed here over the years, of the final sort of blow off peak in Western civilization? Well, that, that, that could, could very well be because there's so much that's unprecedented. It's like when you take the, the, the global pension fund liabilities of 300 trillion, well, all the central banks in the world can't print $300 trillion. I mean, our central bankers, they are a crafty bunch. If we tear a page from their playbook, they're going to try every possible means, as we saw you know, John Law's time, Mississippi scheme, and especially in the French revolutions. They came up with every possible way to keep the house of cards from completely imploding. So what, what has to happen first is... Is the, the banks have got to be scared by a little bit of deflation. So this is going to happen probably in corporate debt defaults. Okay. So when you start having that kind of deflation, they're going to jump in and start printing. And then as they start, start printing, it'll get out of control. Just like every other hyperinflation around the world, there has never been a fiat currency that didn't end in hyperinflation. Not one, ever. You talk to folks today in just general conversation, how few are aware of what's happening just south of our border, in Venezuela and Argentina. The thing that's not dealt with in the mainstream media is Deutsche Bank. So Deutsche Bank has more lawsuits than you can count in terms of manipulating markets and so on and so forth. But the thing is, the share price has gone from 150 bucks a share to six bucks a share. Okay, if it goes sub six bucks, okay, the derivatives book that they have, which is the largest in the world, is gonna is gonna start defaulting. A Bear Stearns Lehman Brothers moment, but times a thousand. It's Lehman times a thousand. Well, it's that in interconnect, and and all the derivatives they they say are you know are offset and counterbalanced. Well, as long as everybody's still solvent, but you 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 have a few insolvencies in in the counterparties, and the derivatives book falls apart, and it becomes a real liability. Our money center banks, McPherson, you add up all of the um, debt that you're referring to, some of these toxic very tricky uh, debt instruments. Uh, some estimates show as much, I want to say, is 200 to $250 billion. If you have your money in, in the bank and you have you know, insurance up to a point, but after, after that insured amount, um, if, if the bank has derivatives losses, it takes precedent over your bank deposit. If you have a margin account, you are absolutely right. They are hit first. Uh, cash accounts hit last. But if we look at what happened in Poland and Cyprus, uh, the the bank holders were left holding the bank. Yeah, you got bank shares instead of money. 
I, 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 it's like the sign in the restaurant where, you know, management eats here too. Well, all, all of my investment wealth is in physical bullion at this point in time. Same as the company's working capital. When, when the market corrects, then in my personal portfolio, I'll diversify it and, and have REIT stocks, bonds, gold, silver. But right now, it's only gold. Why don't you give people any parting wisdom you'd like to share? Yeah, we, we have two, two websites now. So there's the BMG group where we have three mutual funds, a gold, silver, platinum fund, a gold only fund, and a silver only fund. Then we also sell bullion bars to high net worth investors and we store them with brinks at the, at their main vaults all over the world so people can choose which which country, which vault that they want. Uh, I'm, I'm starting this hedge fund, which is going to be primarily for uh, pension funds, but also suit accredited investors. Now, the other thing that we've done in, in Canada, we have uh, what's called Class D units, and that, those units are for people that have discount brokerage accounts. So if you have a discount brokerage account, Class D units, the management fee is 1.5%, whereas Class A, which you buy through an advisor, is 2.25% because you have to pay the trailer. So for people that, that do their own investing decisions and have a discount brokerage account, they can buy Class D of our funds. And to help people with that, we've created what, what we're calling the DIY investor resources site. So what it has on, on that site is all the informational resources you might need to help you make investment decisions. And that's, that's all free. You can sign up to the Bullion Buzz. That's free. Uh, we list a number of, uh, both free and subscription newsletters. So, uh, you can get your in investing advice that way. How do you see the end game playing out? Do you see that from a socioeconomic perspective and even on a global arena, a vast, not only wealth shift, but political and military power, economic shift? Do you expect this to be a prolonged, almost as we saw with Great Britain, the decline of this massive behemoth uh, global empire. I think it's going to be like Great Britain because the issue is that I think at some point in time we're, we're going to have a, a, a different reserve currency system and probably the leading thing uh, to fill that role is the SDRs. Now the number of people like Jim Rickards that, that's what he thinks as well that we'll move to SDRs and the percentage of, of currency within the SDR will get modified to be uh, fairer than it currently is. And then China and Russia will have a decent role relative to their size of their, their economies. Uh, so that that's where I think the, the transition, whether that ends up good or bad, I don't know. And part of the SDR holdings uh, you know, is, is, uh, physical gold. So this is why I think the central banks like China and Russia are accumulating gold as fast as they can so that when we convert to, to an SDR, they'll have a decent percentage of the SDR.
Well, you know, Nick Bereshev, we appreciate your thoughts and uh, want to encourage everyone today to direct their web browsers to Bullion Management Group. We'll have links all over our websites at GoldSeek and looking forward to hearing your next set of interesting insights on the financial markets as well as the precious metals, which we hope are finding a bottom here, maybe a capitulation. Yeah, I think we're pretty close to that point. So the book is available on Amazon and Kindle, so it gives people a good basic overview of money and gold and how everything works. So I encourage them. That would be a good starting point. And would you say now that uh, three or four years after its publishing that you feel the projection might have been overly conservative? Well, yeah, because the, the debt has continued to go up. Thank you, sir. Please return to the show. Okay, bye now. This is Robert Ian with GoldSeek.com Radio. Have you ever been under so much stress for an extended period of time that you didn't realize you were under that stress until something changed in your current situation and stress you didn't fully appreciate the magnitude of gets lifted off your shoulders? It's a remarkable feeling when it occurs, and then a day or two later, you get hit with an intense feeling of exhaustion, when you finally begin to realize and recognize the accumulation of the enormous stressors you have been carrying around. This past week, I experienced this process. It's quite profound when it happens. A family member had been diagnosed with a terminal condition last year, and the best estimates were that only two to three years of life expectancy remained. And now there exists, based on some of the latest, most advanced testing, the likelihood that something else is going on, something that isn't likely terminal and may actually be treatable. If you found out your brother, your sister, your spouse, your niece, your nephew, a parent, or someone very close to you had a short time remaining, how would you respond? Perhaps you've already walked this journey. Without disclosing too much, I will say the feeling of renewed optimism in the wake of certain defeat, is energizing and exhilarating. However, there are no guarantees of success moving forward. But had we stopped at any previous point along this journey and said, this is it, by definition, we would have already given up and the opportunity of writing a different ending to this story would never have materialized. How much unfinished business do you have? How many active storylines do you have in your life that, if you could, you would seek to write a different ending for? Father Time takes no prisoners. No matter what path you are on, no matter what burdens you may be shouldering, 
no matter what frustrations you may be enduring. The idea is to keep searching, finding, and when necessary, inventing new options to place on the table in front of you for your consideration. Because the more questions you ask, the more stones you turn over, and the more wisdom you seek, eventually you may find exactly what you need. Magic moments of renewed optimism in the wake of certain defeat are one of the greatest blessings we can experience. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. GoldSeek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMax products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. GoldSeek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit 
with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.